Good morning, church. Good to see you. Name is Branziski, lead pastor here. Just real quick, if you are new or you've been with us for a hundred Sundays, we want to say again and again and again that we strive to be a church that's simply all about Jesus. Because as you're going to discover this morning, seeing him for who he is literally changes everything. We will discover that and we need to have that really strongly imprinted on the front, forefront of our minds and our hearts. So as we jump into the text this morning, I hope you have your Revelation Bible journal with you. We're still in chapter one. Um, we got to kind of the end of verse eight. It was like kind of like verse six. We got there at seven, eight. Didn't quite cover it. But we're going to jump ahead this morning into verses nine through 20. Now, quick disclaimers as we get into this series. We're going to say this often because we want to make sure that we're kind of like on the same platform as we approach this text. Revelation, as Eugene Peterson said, and we said this last week, and I think this is important for us to remember, is that Revelation is not about prediction. It's about perception. It's not trying to predict who the Antichrist is and what nation is this and what nation is that or when these things will all happen. It's about perception. It's about seeing the unseen realities in the present. It's helping us to see what is true even though our eyes can't see it. And so it really is a book of discipleship. Revelation is for modern day disciples who have eyes to see the power of the empires in our world that are underneath the influence and the authority of Satan and how that could affect our churches and our lives. Michael Gorman, who's a theologian, I love the way he described Revelation. And, and I'm going to say it again. This is so good. I encourage you to write this down. Revelation is not about a rapture out of this world, but it's about faithful discipleship in this world. And a lot of times I think that's why we get so wrapped up in all the mystery of Revelation. And sometimes that's even why we fear Revelation is like, when's the rapture happening? I hope it happens at the right time when I'm ready. And we start thinking it's all about then and there and the future, but it's not so much about that. It's about discipleship in the here and now. How do we stay faithful to the way of the lamb instead of finding ourselves maybe kind of compromising our allegiance to the way of the dragon? Greg Stevenson, I love the way he says this, Revelation symbolically transforms the world into a battlefield in which the forces of the dragon are arrayed against the forces of the lamb. It's just like what Paul says in Ephesians, that the battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, the rulers of the air. And, and I think about this, and so often, like if we were honest with ourselves, like we don't like to read Revelation too much for a whole myriad of reasons. Some of us just don't like to feel confused right? Like as you just even heard those verses today, the verses 9 through 20 about the image and the vision of seeing the Son of Man of Jesus, you're like, okay, a double-edged sword coming out of the mouth. That's weird, right? You start to think about these things, and then you get further and further, and you see more and more images and all this stuff, and you're confused. And sometimes that confusion leads to fear. What does all of this mean? What does this mean? The, the judgments and the wrath and the four horsemen and all the stuff that's in there feels like an epic movie. And so we kind of stay away. And some of us stay away because we've known that Revelation has been abused and misinterpreted and misused in multiple areas. And so we need to say simply on the forefront and put all of us on the same plane. None of us are experts when it comes to interpreting Revelation. Only the Holy Spirit is. Amen. Like we come in humility and we say, Holy Spirit, would you show us what it is that you want to stir within us as a church today as it relates to following you faithfully in this present context. G.K. Chesterton, I stumbled upon this quote this week and it made me laugh. He's a great theologian and at the same time, he's a bit of a comedian as he writes about these deep mysteries of God. He writes this regarding Revelation. And though John, he saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. I was just like, <laughs> amen. 
And as we look at this, I know, like, if you've ever been in church world or if you studied Revelation, you're going to land in one of the four main camps that people look at Revelation through. One of them is the historist view, which is constantly, they're the type that would take Revelation with them when they watch the news, trying to figure out all of the things that are happening in here and now. There's the preterist view that's just like, this was all about back then and there, and it doesn't really apply to us today. And then we have the futurist view, which is very much dispensationalism. Like, hey, chapters 1 through 3 was for then and there. Now 4 through 22 is for the millennium. It's for the tribulation. It's for the future. And it doesn't even necessarily apply to even now. And then there's the idealist camp that's like, yeah, these are just great principles and ideas. We're coming at this through a pastoral lens that would be what a lot of scholars would say is the eclectic view. Understanding that each of these camps has a certain strength, but they also have a certain weakness when it comes to interpretation. And so we're coming in humility and saying, Lord, we want to understand how this affects our lives now. How does this help us to be a better disciple now? Okay, and so yes, this isn't just all about the future because this letter was written in the back, in, in the past, in the then and there. When John wrote this, it was somewhere between 80, 90, and 96, Domitian was the emperor, and the churches were facing extreme persecution. And John refused to throw the incense on the altar to cry out and say, Caesar is Lord, which was how you would show allegiance to Rome. And if you didn't, you would be persecuted. He refused to do that. And so the reward for that decision was to be exiled on the island of Patmos. And as he's there, he knows the extreme persecution that's happening in the churches. We know by history tells us that Domitian around AD 92 executed 40,000 Christians for fun. Persecution was affecting the church on the outside. And at the same time, because of all of that, and because of the allure and the seducing of the empire and the things of this world, there was compromise that was happening on the inside of some of these churches as well. So we've got to understand, Revelation was written in that context, not just for future prediction. There was real encouragement, real hope, real things that God wanted to say to those seven churches in Asia Minor to stir them up. Because the time is near. The time is near. We are in the end times. I remember like sometimes I'll say that to people, they're like, wait, 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 really? Like, yes. When Jesus ascended, that started it. And over and over and over, we see this in Scripture. The time is near. The time is near. And all of that language is meant to stir up anticipation and to keep us on our toes in this posture of expectancy. Osborne, a theologian, he writes this. In the light of the fact that the time is near, we are called to live decisively and completely for God. In fact, even his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, after Jesus, is set, or like Jesus showed up post-resurrection, he's talking to them, and they're like, Jesus, hey, is now the time when you're going to establish your kingdom? Right? Like, isn't this the end time? Like, come on, let's do it. And Jesus is like, listen, that's not for you to worry about, but you will be my witnesses. So it's like even there, back in those days, they were longing and hoping to see this kingdom established now. And Jesus is like, no, now is the time for the church to be the light of the world. Focus on being my witnesses. And I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and he will give you the power to do this. And so in the words of a Duke Divinity School professor, summarizing Revelation, he says, I have seen the present and the future and it belongs to God. I think that sums it up quite well. So before we get into the text this morning, I want to be honest with you. Like, anytime you approach Revelation, there, there is fear and trepidation coming into it. And this week, I feel it more, like this morning, I feel it more than I have all week. And we're, because <laughs> we're trying to talk about the first revealing, the first great image we see and it's the image of the glorified Son of Man. And I'm like, Lord, don't let me screw it up. Right? Like, I'm feeling the weight of it. Like, I want to be right. I don't want to be, I don't want to mislead people. I want to make sure I do this right and all this kind of stuff. And then I'm feeling the same posture that we're going to see John had. Like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to do this. And so I'm coming to you publicly confessing, 
I'm nervous this morning, not because of you. <laughs> I'm nervous because I want to honor the Lord. And I want to stay true to the scriptures as best as I can. So I want to encourage you, please pray for me as I pray for us. <laughs> Lord, I, I am thankful for your word. It, it's, it's more than just a guide of how to do life. It's more than just a book of instructions of how to live a moral and upright life. Lord, you've given this, this book to stir our hearts and our minds aiding us in our faith to be able to see on the other side of the veil, as it were. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal your son, Jesus. Lord, even if I say something in error, God, would you miraculously change it before it gets in their ears? Lord, we don't want to be excited for excitement's sake. Lord, I pray that you would excite our hearts in seeing Jesus. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. December 18th, 2004. This day was a day unlike any other day in my life. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember feeling full of excitement, full of anticipation, so many nerves, full of joy, and it was just welling up inside of me because this was the day when I would vow my life, my all, to my beautiful bride-to-be. And she's right there, so I cannot look at her. She's, she, and no, I'm not doing this because I was in trouble this week, just, just saying that. <laughs> I remember the angst. I literally am not going to look at you. I remember the angst of waiting for this day all during the engagement period, but there was nothing worse than the impatience of that day, waiting for the ceremony to begin because the ladies needed the full day to get ready. I only needed 15 minutes. What am I supposed to do, right? Like all I could do is just sit there in anticipation and my nerves would build up and all my groomsmen, you know, we would banter, make jokes and laugh. We would eat and yeah, and I probably checked my hair. Like I had more hair back then. I probably checked it like every 15, 20 minutes, making sure everything was tucked in, my tie was all good and all that kind of stuff. But over and over and over, it just like the anxiousness, just in the anticipation, just kept building and building and building. And all I could do and all I could do with the groomsmen was just pass the time knowing that it's coming, but there was nothing I could do in the moment. And then came picture time. Now, Carissa and I, we decided to not see each other until she was going to walk down the aisle. And so then finally, the ceremony starts, and I'm standing up front, so anxious, so nervous, and yet extremely excited. And after the wedding party finally made their way down, because quite frankly, I didn't really care to see them. I was like, come on, speed it up, right? Like, I was just waiting for that moment when everybody would stand and fix their eyes to the back of the room. I mean, like, I'm t like as I was thinking about this all week, I was like, man, like, there are no words to convey, like, how I was feeling in that moment, right? It felt as if time stood still as I was waiting to finally see her. And then the doors finally open, and here comes the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, the one whom I love more than any other and who loves me and for some reason has chosen to marry me. Man, like seeing her in her radiance, seeing her in her beauty, just breathtaking. I felt my knees shaking. Right, like my, my, my palms are starting to sweat. I'm like fidgeting, you know, I'm like, oh my goodness. You know, all of the stuff. And then people every now and then are looking at her, then they look at me and look at her, you're like, just look at her, you know, don't look at me. And I felt my face like getting flush and then something that never happens to me started to happen. Tears began to well up in my eyes and for some reason they took a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember Standing there, just going, this is too good to be true. But it's true. She's marrying me. And I am hers and she is mine. That first look was breathtaking. So church, what would it look like 
What would it be like if right now the curtain between heaven and earth was pulled back and we were able to see into heaven? What would that first look be like? What would it look like to see the Jesus who has been here in our midst all along in our presence, even now, to see him in his glorified state? Would this Jesus fit the mold that you have potentially created for him? Like, would he look the way we would want him to look? Like, would he act the way we would want him to act? Would he speak the way we want him to speak? Have we cut him down to our size? If Jesus in his glorified state was revealed to us in our midst, like, would he be easy to ignore? Would he be easily pushed aside and be like, oh, oh, cool, Jesus, and move on to our day? Or would it knock the wind out of us and cause us to fall on our knees? Maybe another question to ask is, what difference does it even make to see Jesus like this? You see, Revelation 1, 9 through 20 is really the setting, the scene of all of Revelation. This is the first vision, the first revealing of ultimately what the church is and what we even need to see is our glorified Lord and Savior, one like the Son of Man, who's like the Ancient of Days. And to realize he's not just out there in the future. Friends, this glorified Jesus is in our midst. And we need the Holy Spirit to pull back the curtain for you and I, by faith, to realize that he is here. The unseen reality in our present moment. This isn't just a myth. This isn't just an epic movie. This is reality. This was Jesus' response to the persecution, to the struggling, to the compromise that's coming at the church and within the church. Jesus didn't give John like a Bible study and a devotional or a ministry program. Hey, send this program, give him a five-step program on how to build a church and overcoming discouragement and do that. Just have him memorize scripture. He didn't even mobilize them to try to save a nation or any of those things. All Jesus did it was just going, here's ultimately what you need. Let me show you me. And when they saw the glorified son of man, that first look did things to them that we sorely need to have happen to us today in the church. So I'm asking the Lord to stir us up this morning. We have to remember that John was an, not only an apostle, but he was a pastor. And he deeply loves the churches in Asia Minor, those seven churches. He got to pastor them. And now because he chose to not show his allegiance to Domitian or to bow his knee, even if he was just faking it to make it, he didn't do that. Now he's exiled knowing that he was going to be separated from the flocks that he loved. And he knows that these churches are under extreme discouragement, extreme persecution, losing livelihoods, losing homes, losing friends and families of who they love. And he's separated and he can't do anything. You know he's praying. You know he's longing. He's no, you know he's asking questions. These churches in Asia Minor, they're poor, they're weak in comparison to the Roman Empire. What can they do? Right? Everything is running in one direction. It feels like world history is in chaos. Like, is there any hope at all? Like, friends, let me just be honest. No, if all you see are the things of this world. And that's why sometimes it can be discouraging to be a follower of Jesus, right? Man, this culture is going to hell in a handbasket. It is going down in flames. Let's just build bomb shelters and isolate I can't believe, I can't believe. And it's just like, what can we do? Friends, if your eyes only see the things of this earth, you will feel hopeless. That's why God gave us a revelation. Think about all of the images that the people in Philadelphia, Laodicea, Thyatira, Smyrna, Pergamum, all of them. Imagine all of the images and all of the symbols that they see. All of them are 
propping up and communicating Rome is the authority. Rome has the influence. Rome is your savior. Rome is the eternal kingdom. You got images of lions and eagles. You see, you got to understand, these images that you see in Revelation aren't random. Because these are the images that Rome uses. God's like, no, 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 let me show you the real image of the lion. Let me show you the real image of the eagle. Over and over we see this. You see statues built up to these Roman gods and goddesses. You got these temples built to worship Caesar. All of this magnificent architecture meant to overwhelm you. And to go, maybe Rome is the savior of the world. Man, maybe, I mean, what's the big deal, really? Like, I, I, I know Caesar isn't Lord, but what's the big deal if I just take a little incense and throw in the fire so they leave me alone? I mean, what big deal is it if I capitulate just a little? But compromise a little. God knows the heart. He knows I think he's Lord, so no big deal if I just throw a little, little incense just so I don't get harmed, I don't lose my business. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. John writes, immediately identifying with them in verse 9. If we look at this, it is so remarkable. And what you see here, oh, come on. In verse 9, he starts to, okay, tech issues. I am smarter than you, iPad. Okay. <laughs> this is the funniest joke I said all year. I didn't even know it. I mean, he starts out by describing to them, like, I, your brother and partner. Like, this word brother is absolutely beautiful because he's like saying, listen, hey, I'm part of the family. We are sons and daughters of God. I'm with you. I'm carrying the burdens with you. But when he says the word partner, you're like, partner in what? And then when you like, read this sentence, you're like, oh my goodness, are you serious? Like, we're partnering in affliction and in endurance, but we have to see this part right here. It's all in Jesus. When we said yes to Jesus, when we said that Jesus is Lord and we moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we have become partners in the responsibilities and the rights and the joys of everything part of the kingdom. But at the same time, we have become partners in the affliction of the kingdom. It's in Christ Jesus. And here's the deal. The early church back in this day never said yes to Jesus on the premise of health, wealth, and prosperity, ease, and convenience, and comfort. They knew that. But so many people today, we fall prey to that thinking that, man, if I'm going to follow Jesus, he's going to have to give me what I need, what I want. Don't ask me to do too much. I don't want to offend people. I don't want to talk about Jesus to people. Just let them be themselves and I'll be myself over here. I don't want to do this because I don't want to seem like, you know, I don't, like I can't be tolerated, all this kind of stuff. But this is a significant part. Jesus taught us this over and over and over. John 16, 33. In this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have difficulties. But take heart. I've overcome the world. In Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, where Jesus is going through, blessed are the poor spirit, blessed are the meek. All of a sudden he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. Who is the faithful witness? Jesus. He came and took on flesh. He himself suffered. He himself died. Even the apostles understood this. Paul writes in first T- or 2 Timothy 3, he's like saying to them, it's like, if you want to follow Jesus, basically you're going to be suffering. You're going to be facing the affliction. And friends, what we're going to see here as we understand Revelation, is that this affliction and this tribulation and these trials come as a result because we have an enemy that is absolutely hostile to the things of God. And he's waging war continuously against the church. Continuously. He's full of fury. We're going to see that in Revelation 12. He's full of rage. He's throwing the ultimate temper tantrum because he knows he's lost. And so he's going to go down swinging. All of his evil thoughts and passion and appetite is solely focused at the church. 
But that's not the only reason why we're partners as brothers and sisters in the affliction that's in part of the kingdom. It's also because we live in a broken and fallen world where disease and everything else is present. And we still carry with us, yes, we're new creations, but we still carry with us the body of death. We are still prone to wander. We're still given to sin, even though we're not under the power of sin. But it still is there as a force to reckon with that's constantly persuading us and trying to influence us to choose to go after another Lord. Jesus was so real and precious to John. So real and so precious to John that he would rather be exiled as a prisoner on a deserted island than to give up talking about Jesus. Because that's why he's there. He's in exile because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm not going to stop talking about what I've seen and heard. I'm not going to talk, stop talking about the real Lord. Friends, listen. We live in a dark world where the church has been called into as ambassadors, bringing in the light into dark places. The world is under the captive of the enemy, of their sin. And yet sometimes we would choose our own comfort over telling somebody about Jesus. In fact, sometimes, like even in church world, we'd rather critique what happens on a Sunday morning than worship the Son of Man who's in our midst. We need to be stirred. If anything we see in our day and age is that people need Jesus. And we should be people who see him as so precious and so beautiful and so real that we're willing to face any ridicule for the sake of his name. And friends, let's just be honest, because here's something that's absolutely true of all of us in this room. None of us here need to be uh, afraid of being exiled to a rock quarry on an island. The worst, you might get canceled. You might lose a friend. But Jesus is worth it. You see, Revelation is going to show us that the gospel demands such devotion like John's. It demands devotion like John's. And I want to encourage you, like, if, if you want to be challenged, there's a two-part documentary, Volume 1 and Volume 2, on YouTube called Sheep Among Wolves. It's not for the light of heart, but it's talking about a move of God that's happening in the Middle East and missionaries who are sent there. And you start to hear their stories about what they suffer and what they're going through. Man, it, it brings a significant challenge to our hearts here and how we are so afraid to share Jesus with people just because we don't want to make someone feel off. But people in the Middle East are facing rape, male and female. They're facing death and they're sharing Jesus because they know who he is. They know he's worth it. They understand their role and their responsibility. So in verse 10 now, we see that John, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. We're just going to summarize it as the seven churches so we don't have to go through that list all the time, right? So that's there. I'm not going to get too much into the concept of what it means to be in the spirit, but essentially what that means is that the spirit grabbed hold of John. Like John wasn't looking for what God was going to give him, so the Holy Spirit grabbed him, and he was in the Spirit. And I love the fact that it says that he was doing this on the Lord's Day, because that's essentially a Sunday. So like John, even though he's exiled on this island for saying yes to Jesus and no to Caesar, he's still setting apart a specific day on a Sunday to worship him. I love that. It is just absolutely beautiful. He could have any reason to be resentful, bitter, like, this is all I get, Jesus. All of my friends have been executed. Timothy was just being to death in Ephesus. And here I am for staying true to preaching your name. No, he chose. No, I'm going to worship him. But yet being a pastor, you know he's grieving still for the churches in Asia Minor. 
I can imagine John in this moment, like trying to stir up his own mind and his memory, looking back potentially to the stories that he experienced with Jesus while Jesus was on the earth. God, he has to be. Like, I got to imagine moments when John was just like, oh, man, I remember the time on the boat when the storm came and Jesus just just said, stop, and it just stopped just by the authority of his word. And I can imagine John just maybe thinking, Jesus, can you do that now? Can you just say stop? Maybe John had a moment where he reflected on Jesus over, like flipping over the tables in the temple. Like, Jesus, could you do that now? Maybe he recalled the time when he called forth Lazarus from the, from the tomb to, to live again or other moments to encourage and to stir him up. Like all of these things would have helped for sure, but John needed something more. The church in Asia Minor needed something more. And to be honest, like so do we. And the question we have to ask is what is this more? We need a new way of seeing Jesus. We, we really do. We, knew we need a new way of seeing Jesus. And I'm thankful that we have this section of Revelation. Because let's just, let's just think about this. When we think about Jesus, we tend to think about him primarily through the lens of the three years in the Gospels, right? We think of those stories, and that's great. He's gentle, he's kind, he's fierce, all the types of things. He shows love, he shows mercy, he's teaching, all that kind of stuff that's there. Absolutely but you've got to ask yourself, why? Why did God give us this picture of the Son of Man? We need to also see this other side of Jesus. We need to see him and understand him in his glorified state. We really do. Because otherwise we're left with a lot of anxiousness inside of us. And I love how this comes out. John is not talking about some inner mystical thought that he had when he heard this. Like, he heard a voice behind him. Like, behind, like, like that meant, like, John heard something and he turned around. So this was like a literal manifestation of something. We don't really know. And as we're going to see, it's the Son of Man describing himself to him. We're going to see something about Jesus. And, and like, this is a good setup for all of Revelation. Okay, John's going to use words and phrases that it's, you're going to be like, what are you talking about? He's going to use these, like, these phrases like, it was like, it seemed like, it looked like. He doesn't have words to accurately convey what he's seen. He's trying the best he can. So, for instance, he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet. He didn't hear a literal trumpet. He's trying to stir up our imagination to help us think what that would have sounded like, right? A trumpet is a loud, piercing, cutting through all noise type of sound. So that's telling us, like, man, God, Jesus was speaking and it cut through everything else. But not only that, in those days, trumpets were blown when people of royal authority would walk in. So he hears this voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet. Now, this is what I love. It, Eugene Peterson talks about this, saying that like the revelation is so much more about teaching us how to think about Jesus through the senses. And here's his quote, and I'm going to read this um, in its entirety because it is really, really good. I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before in the law and the prophet and the gospel and the epistle. Everything in the Revelation could be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know because the truth of the gospel is already complete. It's revealed in Jesus. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there's a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. St. John uses words the way poets do, recombining them in fresh ways. So the old truth is freshly perceived. He takes truth that has been eroded to platitude by endless usage, and he sets it in motion before us as an animated, impassioned dance of ideas. Now, some of us would be like, boy, that feels kind of shaky. 
What do you mean ideas? Like I can create anything in my mind? No. That's why we have these images. It's meant to help us think about the Son of Man in a certain way. And John's not like literally describing, this is how Jesus looks. Because everything he's starting to describe is helping us to know something about who he is. He's not literally telling us that this is how Jesus looks. No, these images that I'm telling you, because I don't know how else to describe it, is meant to help you and us to understand this is who Jesus is. A lot of these images we're going to see as we journey through Revelation is absolutely countercultural to the images that are propped up all around these churches. It's the same thing with us today. We need to see that Jesus is on his throne, that history isn't spinning out of control, that he has the authority, that his words are the ultimate. He alone knows what is right and what is wrong, and he alone can hold judgment. He can hold the weight of all of that. He alone knows. So let's just get into the rest of this. Verse 12 Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. A voice is loud like a trumpet, unavoidable, inescapable. And he turned. You You got to imagine his first look. It shook him to his core. It had to have made his knees weak. It had to make his heart rate, heart rate rise. It had to cause tears to well up in his eyes because he's been anxiously longing to see Jesus again. And now here he is, and he sees him amongst these seven lampstands. And we know in verse 20, it tells us that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches that this letter is going to, but it also expands further than that because seven is the number of completion or wholeness. So this represents every church for all time. He's seen this son of man in the midst of his churches. This is a connection all the way back to the Old Testament. He's referencing Daniel chapter 7. And not only that, these beautiful images of the lampstands really do help us connect what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The church is the light of God in this dark world. And the encouraging part is he's not isolated from them. He's not far removed from them. Jesus gave a revelation pulling back the curtain to show you and I and all people of God for all time that he's in the middle of his churches. He cares deeply about what's happening in his church because his church bears his name. He's intimately involved. The problem is we don't see that. Yes, literally we don't see that, but even the eyes of our faith fail to remember that. If we were to understand this correctly, he's in our midst now. This image of the Son of Man is in our midst now. Not later, not back then, now. He sees it. Man, friends, like what would that do? Like what would that do for us as a church to remember that and to like come to church and be part of the church with the understanding that he is in our midst? very much in concern and care of everything that happens. How would it affect what we do? How would it affect how we worship when we come? How would it affect our witness when we leave? I mean, these early churches back in these days had to have been wondering, where is he? Where is this king of the kings? Where's the one that resurrected? Where is this one that talks about the kingdom? Here we are losing everything. Where is he? 
And all of a sudden, they get this revelation that he is right there with them, in the midst of them, understanding everything. And he's the one who's going to keep that fire going within the churches. He's going to be the one that's even going to correct them when they're compromising and being complacent. He's going to rebuke them and call out their sin so that they continue to move forward. He's going to watch over them, and he's going to continue to strengthen them. But not only that, friends, there's never been a church on this side of eternity that's ever been perfect. Perfect. That means Jesus is standing in the midst of imperfect people and he loves to be there. He's in the midst of that as we strive to try to live for him in this culture, in this time. He knows all of the things that we wrestle with. And as long as we are repentant, as long as we are striving to continue to move towards him, as we're going to see the next few weeks, that lampstand will remain. But if we choose to compromise our allegiance and we choose to not be repentant as a church, he will remove the lampstand. It's absolutely stunning. And then if you look at all of these descriptions of who he is, oh man, son of man, human and divine, 100%. He's dressed in a robe. This is a high priestly robe. Hebrews 4 tells us that he is our high priest. But also at the same time, this also reflects about kingly authority. Because in Roman culture, the longer your robe was, the more authority you had. He had this robe all the way down in the golden sash that's wrapped around his chest. Stunning imagery. Because if you had a sash and it was wrapped around your waist, that meant you still have work to do. But in a sign of symbolism in those days, if the sash was across their chest like so, it meant the work is finished. He's our high priest with a golden sash. It's done. When was Satan defeated? Not at Armageddon. At the cross. Death was defeated, the resurrection, it is finished. To him who loves us, we are blood-bought followers of Jesus, and it's a finished work. His hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, which is reflecting back to the ancient of days, but also talks about how he's pure and he's holy, but it is also ageless for all time. He's eternal. His eyes are like fiery flame. Gah. Gah. Like when I read that, I'm like, ouch, fire hurts. Yes, fire purifies. And we should be thankful that the eyes of our Lord and Savior are like fire. They pierce, they go through the facade, they see everything, and it burns away the sin and all of the complacency and compromise in our lives. But yet at the same time, for those who aren't in Jesus, these fiery eyes are a terrifying thing because he sees. His voice, the sound of cascading waters, his voice drowns out all other voices. And at the same time, it can also bring about peace and tranquility. He had seven stars in his right hand. Anything that's held in the right hand is a symbol of what they care about most, what is treasured most is the sign of authority and power. And these seven stars really kind of represent God's people. But there's also other conversations about these seven stars are a reflection of the stars that were given to Domitian's son when he died, who's deified, saying he's the one who rules over the cosmos. And also we get this revelation saying, no, Jesus holds the stars. He holds it all. It's all in his hands. And then out of his mouth comes this double-edged sword. On one side, it saves, and the other side, it can condemn. It brings hope. And the other side, it brings hopelessness. It's like what Jesus says, like, if you don't move into the light, you are standing condemned already. It brings life, but at the same time, it brings death. Paul even says, like, to some were the aroma of Christ. It's pleasant and it's sweet, but to others, it's the aroma of death. 
It's the double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. And his face, shining like the sun, at full strength. And John's only reaction to all of this fell at his feet like a dead man. This is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's seen him before. But now there's something different about him and yet familiar about him. And John is overwhelmed with his glorified state. And in the presence of the Son of God in his full radiance, John becomes extremely aware of his depravity. He becomes extremely aware, oh my goodness, I am so unworthy, and he fell as though dead. And friends, here's why Revelation is not meant to be a letter to to scare you, but it's a letter that's meant to actually encourage you. Look at what Jesus did. He lays his right hand, that was holding the stars, he lays his right hand on John, and he says, don't be afraid. It's almost as if the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, understands what our reaction will be when we see him in his glorified state. And he's like, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and I'm the last. It starts with me, it ends with me, and I'm the living one. I'm the firstborn of the dead. I was dead, but look Look and see, I'm alive forever and ever, and I alone hold the keys of death in Hades. In other words, what's the worst that Rome can do to you? What's the worst that anybody and anything on this earth can do to you? Kill you? Oh, I have the keys. Yeah, you, you can be dead, but because you're mine and I bought you with my blood, I will open that and I'll bring you out. It, it can't do anything. It's like Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one, right, who has the authority over your eternal trajectory. Therefore, write what you have seen and what will take place after this. Friends, what we need more than anything is to recapture and to imagine again the glorified Son of Man in our midst He cares deeply about everything and anything we go through. He alone is worthy. He alone is Lord of all. He alone is going to be the one coming with the clouds. Yes, and when we see Jesus, fear is natural and he knows that. But just like Jesus in the Gospels, he touches out of compassion And in his glorified state, he's reminding, hey, I love you. As we wrap up, we have no reason to be afraid at all. Jesus says here, literally, this phrase, stop being afraid. He's kind of commanding John, stop it, stop. You know, stop being afraid. Why can we stop being afraid when we see Jesus? Because Jesus walked into the jaws of the greatest enemy there ever was. And on the cross, he let all of the powers that threaten to undo us have their complete way with him And he let death take him captive. And then he burst out of the prison called death and he carried the keys with him. We have nothing to fear. The battle is over. And this is why we need faith. We need faith to believe in the unseen realities of what is true. And my prayer for us is that as we journey through all of this, is that we get a better glimpse, a better understanding 
a better knowing of who John is than not who John is. See, right there, he, transfer, he, he transformed that phrase, John, to Jesus in your ears, right? Gosh. Look and see him. See him. And some of us this morning need to take comfort in the fact that he is in our midst. He sees you. He cares deeply about you. He cares so much about you that he's willing to speak a word that will offend you. He loves you so much that he's willing to speak truth of offense, of correction, and rebuke. Jesus comes and he will lay his hand on you. And I'm friends, I'm telling you, all of our fears find their, their root in the fear of death. But look, he's alive forevermore. He holds the keys and he alone is worthy. And as we end our time together and we worship together, I want you just to imagine and contemplate what would it be like to see Jesus in his glorified state? And what difference that would make in your heart and in your life and in your worship? Lord, I thank you for your word. And, and God, I just ask that you would take the, the mess of notes, the strain of thought, and Holy Spirit, you would take one or two things and just let it break the soil in our hearts to get deep and take root. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful witnesses, that no matter what we're going through personally or what we're going to go through as a church culturally, Lord, that we wouldn't compromise our allegiance Lord, that we would look at your eyes that are fiery and not run away from those eyes, but run towards those eyes, even if it hurts. Lord, that we will submit to your word that's a double-edged sword that can even cut and divide and heal and restore. Lord, I pray that we would be captivated by you. And for that to happen, Holy Spirit, we need you. Help us to understand the depth of the love of Christ. Pray this in Christ's name.